But first, we start with the deadly Kelowna crane collapse. Five fatalities now confirmed in this accident after that construction crane crashed to the ground in downtown Kelowna. I've got Laird Kronk standing by, president of the BC Federation of Labor. First, have a listen to this report now from Global News. Four bouquets of flowers for four construction workers who lost their lives in downtown Kelowna Monday morning as friends and co-workers process the unimaginable tragedy. It's hit home for all of us that even have kids, you want to go home and give them a kiss every day every day because you never know when your last day will be. It was just before 11 a.m. when the boom of a crane at the 25-story Brooklyn Building construction site on Bernard Avenue and St. Paul Streets came crashing down. It was the first time in my career as a first aid attendant where I couldn't do anything. One day later, RCMP confirming the number of casualties, five in total. Four construction workers and one person who was working at an office adjacent to the construction site. One person who remains unaccounted for, believed to be deceased in the rubble, not associated to the, to the construction, was working next door. Efforts are now underway to find and remove that victim using an urban recovery team from the Lower Mainland. While police have not released the names of the five victims, three of the construction workers have been identified on social media and GoFundMe accounts as Jared Zook, whose family hails from Edmonton, and brothers Eric and Patrick Stemmer of Salmon Arm. Yesterday was a tragic day um, to see uh, all those workers standing there and um, knowing that they had just lost some of their friends and co-workers and to see the families and what they were dealing with. Mission Group, the company developing the site, expressing its deepest sympathy for the families of those affected by the tragedy, adding it has set up support services to help those in need. According to the development company, the catastrophic failure happened during the crane's dismantling process, but how and why remain unknown. Questions that are now the subject of a WorkSafe BC investigation. Why exactly uh, that crane collapsed? That's a part of the investigation. I simply don't know the answer and I certainly couldn't speculate. While investigators look for answers, those impacted by the tragedy are left to mourn the loss of those whose lives were cut short. We're all trying to cope however we can. Claudia Van Emmer, Global News, Kelowna. All right, let's uh, discuss now with my guest, Laird Kronk. Laird is the president of the BC Federation of Labor, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Laird, thank you for coming on this morning. Morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Laird, I, I appreciate your time here this morning. I mean, this is the worst possible news that any labor leader can deal with in the province, and especially yourself as the top labor leader in BC. Um, what can you say about this incident? Uh, Mike, um, my heart is broken. I, it's horrific. It's uh, devastating. It's catastrophic. Uh, our hearts and prayers go out to these to these uh, workers who lost their lives, to the um, to the fifth victim who who we hear was in an adjacent building. Uh, unrelated to the construction site, um, to their families, to their friends, to their co-workers, many who, who witness this horrific event and will have uh, um, probably psychological uh, trauma issues related to that. It is just cranes should not fall from the sky in 2020-2021. Yeah, that is certainly true. Um, when you take a look at the loss of life here, uh, four workers and one person in, a, in an adjacent building have lost their lives, as you mentioned. This is very very deadly accident when you compare it in bc history i mean this is one of the worst we've seen 
in British Columbia history. You think back to the Second Narrows Bridge or the sawmill explosions, the 1981 Bentall Center Tower accident. There were four carpenters killed that day, and I know you know this list very well. Um, when you take a look at construction in particular, it, is construction a, a very dangerous job in BC? How would you quantify it? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Look, I come out of the construction industry. I'm a red seal electrician. I've worked in pulp mills. I've worked in commercial. I've worked in industrial sites, residential sites. Every construction worker knows that construction sites are a dangerous environment, but that's why we have Workers' Compensation Act rules. That's why we have regulations. That's why we need to make sure we have proper training provided by employers for all workers and certifications and we need to have enforcement of these rules that's proactive we need all of the legs of that stool to function together so that we don't have to as you said and i know these events all too well have to announce hundreds more uh, deaths in construction again next year we shouldn't be announcing any deaths in construction we should be able to stop this uh, in 2021. Yeah, I mean, the tragedy is these are preventable deaths, uh, as you know. Uh, the construction industry, though, the death rate, the worksite death rate in construction, I think is like triple the average. So it's a, it's a dangerous job. Do you feel that the, the safety rules are adequate and that they're being adequately enforced? Uh, I think stronger enforcement uh, still needs to be in place. I think the rules, and we have an awful lot of rules and regulations, and many of them are very good. We have lots of advocates and experts in the labor movement that, uh, that work with workers' compensation board uh, folks to try and strengthen these rules. Uh, but they, we also need to make sure that employers are required to provide mandatory training, mandatory certification of workers. We need to ensure that the government proactively and, and if need be, randomly inspects to make sure that these rules, you have all the rules in the world, but if they're not enforced, um, you can run into situations. Look, I want to be really clear. Uh, and I don't want to prejudge what happened in Kelowna because we just simply don't know. We know this crane should not have fallen out of the sky and killed people, but we yeah. don't know what it is. So it's really important that we find out why. And I'm encouraged to know that the RCMP is there gathering what evidence there may be. The WCB is there with their expertise as well. The coroner service is involved. We need to learn the lessons of what happened here, and we need to make uh, uh, make that information available. And if WCB finds out there's something that other employers, crane operators need to know or other lessons are learned, we need that revealed so that we can make sure this never, ever happens again. Speaking to Laird Kronk, he's the president of the BC Federation of Labor. Laird, the BC Fed represents uh, the major trade unions in, in the province. And this was a, non, a non-union work site uh, in Kelowna. Does that... Does that make a difference? I mean, it's the same safety rules that apply, right? Whether it's union or non-union workshop. Look, it's, it's straightforward in British Columbia that the requirement for worker safety uh, is a requirement of the employer, every employer, whether it's a union employer or not a union employer. The rules and regulations, the health and safety of the workers and the worksite is the obligation of the employer. So we need to make yeah. sure those rules and regulations are stringent. They're the same for all employers. Uh, and then we need enforcement, and we need training, and we need certification. That's where the rubber hits the road. Last question for you, Laird. What do you hope will ex- and expect from the, this investigation? What do you think are the keys here as this investigation unfolds? Well, again, I won't, I won't prejudge for obvious reasons. We simply yeah. don't know what happened. We know it shouldn't have happened, but we don't know what it is. That what we are looking for, and I think we are well in process on that, 
is to make sure that we have a fulsome, appropriate investigation. That means the authorities that are supposed to be there doing their work to find out, the RCMP, the coroner service, um, WCB, they should all be on scene. My understanding is they are. Let's find out what it is. And if there is something, we should be nimble about as we go. It has to be thorough, has to be accurate, but let's be nimble about relaying that information if it's of value um, to other workers, other sites, other employers as we go. Okay, I send up, I'm sure I speak on all the listeners, sending out the sympathies to the friends and family of the people who lost their lives here in this accident. Laird Cronk, thank you for being on the show this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Talking about mandatory vaccinations for COVID on colleges and universities. Look what's happening here north of the border. We got the first college now in Canada uh, bringing in mandatory vaccines if you want to attend that college. Seneca College in Toronto, the first one in the country with a mandatory vaccine requirement to attend classes on that campus. Not if you're just living in residence like some universities and colleges have already done. Take a look at how this is unfolding here at different institutions across the country. At the University of Toronto, if you're living in the dorm, so if you're living in residence starting this fall, you will be required uh, to be vaccinated, but only if you're living in residence. If you're attending the university off campus, uh, you would not be required to get the vaccine. Western University in Ontario, also required to receive a first dose of the vaccine to live in residence. UBC here in British Columbia strongly encouraging people in the community to get the vaccine, but not mandatory. Seneca College in Toronto, the first one with the mandatory vaccine rule uh, in our country. Let's see what you think about it now on the open line. Phone me on it. Tell me what you think. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's check in now with uh, Timothy Caulfield, Professor of Health and Law at the University of Alberta, Canada's Research Chair in Health Law and Policy. Tim, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think this should be the rule in our country too? Uh, I'm starting to lean towards a tentative yes. Um, And look, I I think that there are a lot of issues that need to be dealt with if we're going to go this route. Um, We need to make sure that there is uh, good access to vaccines. We may have to make sure all the barriers are reduced, and we have to make sure that we've done our best in order to get uh, to encourage this demographic to get to get vaccinated. But but look, you know, we're starting to hit a hesitancy hurdle, a complacency hurdle. And this is the exact demographic. You know, this is the demographic that seems to be the most hesitant with respect to at least age. It's the, it's the group mm. that's between, you know, 18 and, and 29. Uh, and so having a, this kind of policy might, might make a real difference. I recognize there are challenges and there are issues, but I think that they can be, they can be dealt with. If you take a look at what's going on in the United States, it's interesting to see them first out of the gate on this. And it looks like around well, maybe like 10% of colleges in the U.S. have brought in these mandatory vaccine rules, but the number continues to go up. But it looks like it's kind of a bit of a patchwork in the U.S., right? I mean, is it? it's interesting to overlap the, the political map of the country in the United States. It seems like more of the conservative parts of the country, Republican parts of the country are more anti-vax and do... Do uh, colleges and universities in those parts of America less likely to have an, a mandatory vaccine rule? Uh, yes, you're, you're exactly yeah. right. And, and I don't think we have enough numbers to say this definitively, but we're definitely seeing a red state, blue state 
uh, trend. You know, you know, yeah. coincidentally, my one of my my kids goes to university in the United States, and and they were. I think it's a little bit of a paradox. You know, her university was much more aggressive at getting their their students vaccinated than in the United States, and she's in a in a red state. Uh, um, jurisdiction um and it was very interesting to see how aggressive uh her her university actually actually was and one of the reasons i think that's a paradox because as you know in the united states much more polarized you know i think we have much higher levels of hesitancy but we do have that kind of hesitancy in canada too right having said that having said that you know most canadians support uh have there's you see soft support for some mandatory vaccines here in canada okay what about you know, it always gets down to a rule about per, uh, an argument about personal freedoms and liberties in our country too, right? Like if people are saying these are these va- vaccines are not mandatory in our country, so why should they be mandatory to go to a college, go to university, or do anything else? Work in a nursing home. I, I suspect it probably ends up in a constitutional court challenge at one point. What are your thoughts on that? Like the per- when people make the argument, it should be my personal freedom. Well, you know, I'll start by saying that we're hearing a lot of rights language right now from the anti-vax community, and, the, and the, it's often not portrayed accurately from a legal perspective, right? You know, you don't you, know, you hear it in the context of freedom of expression, you hear it in the context of this of this idea that we can't be forced to take a vaccine. Well, no one's you know actually forcing. You know, you don't have stormtroopers coming to to your door and holding you down and giving you you know a vaccine. It's it's still a, still a choice. But but you're absolutely right when you start talking about making something mandatory to access something that's a uh, a public resource, we do get into this constitutional territory. And that's why I think that if, if we are going to go down this, this road, we have to make sure that we have to make sure that, you know, those equity and access issues are dealt with, that there are reasonable uh, exemptions. And I actually think if we're going to do something like this. Those should be relatively broad. Um, I, I know not all, some of my, <laughs> my uh, public health, yeah. my public health colleagues may not agree with that, but I, I think here what we're trying to do is encourage the complacent. Cause I think a lot of the people in this demographic, they, they just, it's just not higher on their priority list, right? So this is one way to nudge them towards getting vaccinated. Timothy Caulfield from the University of Alberta, as is my guest. Let's squeeze a couple of phone calls in here and see what people think. Corey on the line in Surrey. Hi, Corey. What do you think? Yeah, no, I am 100% against it. And just let me, let me just say I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I have my vaccine. I get a flu shot every year. I have my uh, shingles uh, vaccine. So I'm looking at this as a freedom uh, issue. Um, yeah. Where's the slippery slope here? Like, I mean, the flu equally kills young people. Um, uh, do you start saying restaurant people have to start having a Hep A and Hep B shop because that's dangerous because they're handling our food? Like, where does it stop? Oh, it starts here with just this one. Oh, that's okay, guys. Don't worry. It'd be okay. Well, you know, well, maybe this worked really well. Everybody did it. Let's try to eradicate the flu. Now everybody has to have a flu shot. Like, that's my concern. And yeah, yeah. if we keep doing this, it has to stop. If you believe in the science, the science is the science. 80% of Canadians are probably going to end up with it, right, with the vaccine. Then at the end of the day, what are you worried about? Like, Okay, Corey, like, Corey thank you thank you for the call. What do you think of that argument, Professor Caulfield? You know, he makes, he makes good points, and I, and I think that's why this is, a, this is a tough issue. We are going to be benefit, uh, we are going to be balancing benefit and risk, but we have to remember here that the reason we're, we want this demographic to get vaccinated is, yes, for their health, but it's really about herd immunity, right? It's for the benefit of the entire community, especially when you think about things like the Delta variant and the importance of, of getting as many people vaccinated as possible. That calculus, the risk-benefit calculus, starts to change. 
What do you think of the the slippery slope argument, you know, the thin edge of the wedge that if you start here with mandatory COVID vaccine, well, then a mandatory flu shot is next or a mandatory hep B shot is, is after that? You know, I'm not, I'm not a fan of slippery slope arguments in general. You know, I think we need to look at things case by case. Um, slippery slope arguments are, are uh, usually don't, don't don't hold up over you know further further scrutiny. Uh, and with respect to the flu vaccine, you know there are maybe situations you know nursing homes etc. where that is something that we want to consider. But look, I, I I am not this you know hardcore mandatory. Yes, I do think these are tough decisions and they have to be evaluated yeah. on a case by case basis. 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Leslie and Burnaby. Hi, Leslie. Oh, good morning, dear. Hi. When I was a kid uh, in the 1950s, I started school, and before I could even start school, my mother had to produce my medical record of all my vaccines to the school board, like every yeah. other kid at that time. And then we had the polio and also meningitis in the 19, early 1950s. I got the meningitis. I had to be treated for that. But yes, I did get my polio, and that was a vaccine on a sugar cube, the first, first one that ever came out. And yes, I believe in it, and all my children are always vaccinated. Thank you for the call, Timothy Caulfield. What do you think about the mandatory vaccines in schools? Have any schools in Canada brought in mandatory vaccine rules? Well, Ontario and New Brunswick have, again, sort of a soft version of mandatory uh, vaccination um, yeah. where you need to, you know, you need, need to be vaccinated before you can have access to a, to a public school. Again, they have pretty broad exemption categories there, and, and there's some controversy about how effective those exemptions are and, and are they justified. Uh, the other thing that's really important to, to note is, uh, you know, Mike, if you look around uh, the world, uh, you know, rightly or not, <laughs> these these programs work. They do increase vaccination uptake. We've seen that in uh, Australia. We've seen that uh, data from California. Uh, whether it's going to have an adverse I- impact on further polarizing the discourse, I think that's something to, to consider. But when you're just measuring uptake, they do seem to have a beneficial impact. Squeeze in one more call. Joanne in New West. Hi, Joanne. Hello, Joanne. Hi. I'm Hi, here. Go, go ahead. I just wanted to respond to a caller I just uh, uh, heard on your show, and he sure. was talking about if 80% of the um, public are vaccinated, what's the problem? The problem is that 20% are not vaccinated, and they're the factories for the uh, variants that are um, now the problem around the world. This is a worldwide pandemic. We want to get back to life. Um, get this over with. And I think that we all have um, uh, a mandatory obligation to get this under control, if if not for ourselves, um, for the community around us and for the people that uh, could potentially die from this. Joanne, thank you for calling. We just got a minute left. Dr. Caulfield, what do you think of that argument like around the 80% level? Well, first of all, I love her message about community because that really is what this is about you know we really have to push that that pro that pro social message but but she's also right about about uh the the effectiveness then the safety of vaccines but also the fact that those who are unvaccinated is where we're going to see the outbreaks and we, again we're starting to see that in the united states and in other jurisdictions so yes uh these policies matter thanks for coming on today very grateful to you thanks very much Mike. 
All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the federal election now. No, the election has not been officially called yet, but the campaigning has clearly begun. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was here the other day with a bag full of money for child care and a SkyTrain extension to Langley. You can bet he'll be back with even more cash. Let's talk to his opponent now, federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, also making his pitch to B.C. voters. Pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, thanks for coming on. Great to be back, Mike. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you were in B.C. the other day. You you were in Richmond. Are you still in B.C. right now? or I'm in B.C. and I'm on my way up to Penticton. Just came from the island. Uh, Nanaimo, Courtney, did some time in, in Richmond, the Tri-Cities. So I, I've been listening. I don't just uh, hand out bags of cash as, as Mr. Trudeau <laughs> trying to buy the election. I'm listening to hear what... Uh, members of the business community are saying about economic recovery. We have a Canada recovery plan that I think the country needs coming out of COVID. What are they telling you? What are you hearing out there? Huge concerns about inflation, uh, rising costs. I was talking to people who have business in textiles, in the hospitality, tourism, all their suppliers are raising costs. So they're really worried about keeping pace. Of course, Mike, you know, housing in British Columbia has been an issue for years. There's a real housing crisis. Um, that's a big issue. On the island, I heard a lot about crime and, and concern about very lax approach to, to serious serious crime, both uh, you know people who, who kill others in drunk driving and uh, people who are at risk. So we're, we're, we're going to make sure we address all these things, but our five-point Canada recovery plan to shoot a million jobs, get it back into action, tackle the overspending, tackle Mr. Trudeau's rising inflation. That's what we're talking about. And people people love our message. We need a plan to recover after the upheaval of the last year. Would you cut taxes? We want to keep taxes low. And, and in some areas, maybe even small reductions to make sure that people, particularly seniors, they're being priced out the cost of living. That inflation's hitting people, especially who are on fixed incomes, Mike. So we are looking at some relief. Mr. Trudeau is looking at taxing people's home equity. Um, we're looking at giving people more Well, he's, den- he's denied that, right? He's denied that. Well, why is he asking the CMAC to study it? Why are they tracking yeah. it through the CRA? And if you look, they're now showcasing people who say, we need to tackle the housing crisis by tacking, taxing the home equity on some people. They're, wow. they're talking about it, Mike. Of course, he's not going to put it in the election window. But people should be very worried about it. He has no plan to get his half-trillion-dollar spending spree under control. Would you cut taxes for the highest wage earners in Canada, or no? No, if, if, if we have relief, it's going to be on people that are, are struggling at the margin. So yeah. I, I talk a lot about single seniors. When they lose their partner, and we see that a lot here on the island, it, when they lose their partner, they, they have all the same costs and they have less fixed income coming in. We'd also look at some strategic cuts for uh, business, small business, encouraging people to invest in small business, invest in startups. The Vancouver area is is well known for its, its startup culture. How can we make sure they stay here and they do, don't move down to San Francisco or Seattle or Boston? So we're looking at a private sector recovery. Our Canada recovery plan will kickstart our economy. That's exactly what we need, particularly young people who are facing a, yeah. a, an impossible task to get in the housing market. They're underemployed. We want to make sure that they have a bright future. Speaking to federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole on the campaign trail here in British Columbia. I mean, the campaign's begun, right? I mean, there's, there's no doubt in your mind the elections this fall, correct? 
Well, Mr. Trudeau is posturing for that. He's told his own uh, internal party people to be ready. But, Mike, this is my first tour as opposition leader. I was elected during COVID. I've been trying to hold Mr. Trudeau to account. We have countless cover-ups and scandals. The Liberals are suing the Speaker of the House because they refuse to release documents about the Winnipeg lab scandal. So this is a scandal plague, unethical government that is now going to try and bribe people with their own money on the eve of an election they're forcing in the summer when the country's not even fully open. My province, Ontario, is not fully open until Friday. The Atlantic bubble's still in place. So people should see Mr. Trudeau always puts his self-interest ahead of the national interest. That's not my approach from serving the country in uniform right through to my approach in politics is about bringing people together. What is it about this guy that you're having so much difficulty sort of laying a glove on him, though? I mean, if you take a look down that list of scandals that you just talked about, I mean, this is a long list. You got the We Charity scandal, uh, SNC-Lavalin, the blackface stuff, his his vacation at the Agacons Island. I mean, it just goes on and on. But then you compare that to the opinion polls, and if you believe them, it says that you've got like a 6% chance to win here. The guy's got it in the bag. (laughs) <laughs> Why? Well, listen, because people have been paying attention to COVID for the last year, but they do know we need a plan to tackle the half trillion dollars worth of debt. Look, Trudeau's basically doubled our national debt. He's raised taxes. He's looking to do that even more. And I've never seen the country more divided. Mike, I was in Alberta just before coming here. People are, are, are losing faith in this country. You know, statues are coming down. Churches are on fire. You know, people people are not even sure if Canada's future is secure. So we need a plan. We need a plan that doesn't leave anyone behind. I've been doing more uh, more outreach to Indigenous leaders. Reconciliation needs to be a real plan as well, not empty words and photo ops from Mr. Trudeau. That's pretty shallow, to be honest. So I think yeah. if people want an ethical leader that's going to recover our economy, help the vulnerable, Canada's Conservatives have, have a five-point recovery plan and we're taking issues like climate change, inclusion. That's my approach as a new leader. So when people see that, Mike, we're getting a great response. And part of the reason he wants to go, he doesn't want me to connect with people because they realize there's a smart choice instead of a scandal-plagued liberal government. But you think, I mean, if you had your way, there would be no election this fall, right? I mean, is there any compelling reason for him to trigger an election in this, fa- this fall? Or do you think the House of Commons is, is working and he should just continue to govern? Well, he's had the NDP prop him up at any time he wanted, including on the budget. He had the Bloc Québécois cover up the, 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 the scandals. Minister Sajan, you and I spoke about that in the past. They covered yeah. up sexual misconduct allegations for three years. So he's been able to be propped up by the parties on the left that support him. We are the only ones that have been fighting for a plan to keep the cruise ship business here in B.C. to have a safe reopening plan. We, we were exposing his, his uh, uncomfortable links with the Chinese communist regime, including the vaccine partnership. We've been the only ones standing up for all Canadians. And I think we need to get the economy moving. Small businesses are in crisis, especially tourism, Mike, on the island. Yeah. Indigenous tour operators, they're really worried. I'd prefer to see a plan to help them, not an election. But I can't ever trust Mr. Trudeau to put the national interest ahead of his own self-interest. Speaking of China, uh, let me ask you about a story that we followed closely here on that on the show, and that's been the fate of the two Michaels now detained in closing in on a thousand days in a Chinese jail. What would you've been very critical of Trudeau's handling of this file and uh, relations with China generally? 
if you were to win the election to become prime minister, what would you do to bring these two Canadians home? Well, we will reset our approach with China. Mr. Trudeau tried to curry favor, in fact, made some decisions that were a risk to our national security and a risk to our reputation. So we will be clear that Huawei will be banned. We'll work with the U.S., the U.K., Australia and others to put a lot more pressure on China. China will respond to serious pressure. They view Mr. Trudeau as not serious. They view him as immature. I'm a different person entirely, uh, a military veteran, a business leader that worked on uh, counterfeit issues from China when I was a lawyer in the private sector. I'm going to be tough, and I'm going to get some of our allies on board. And that type of coordinated pressure, I think, will be the best thing to get the two Michaels home and to start standing up for our workers, because I'll tell you, we're losing jobs and opportunity from outsourcing by a country that is increasingly going in the, back, in the wrong direction. And Canada needs okay. to take a stand. So I think that will, will help by having a stronger, more principled Canada on the world stage. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on. Always good to be with you, Mike. Have a great day. Uh, let's talk about John Horgan's World Cup flip-flop here now. The World Cup of Soccer coming to North America in 2026. John Horgan's B.C. government originally told FIFA to take a hike. We didn't want any part of this. Too expensive. It's a different tune now. Horgan saying this week BC is interested again in hosting World Cup soccer games. Let's discuss now with my guest John Jang. He's a contributor here on the show. Hey, John. Hey, good morning, Mike. Okay, what is Horgan saying here about this now? Well, to your point, yeah, in 2018, when news originally broke that uh, 2026 was being considered here in North America, he took that hardline stand saying that they would not write an open check to FIFA. Now things have changed quite dramatically. Uh, yesterday at a press conference, Richard Zussman from Global News asked him about the potential to get back in. And here's what the premier had to say about that. Well, uh, certainly uh, with Montreal stepping away, it, it does create a real opportunity uh, we're coming out of a global pandemic. Our tourism sector has been buffeted perhaps more than any other sector over the past uh, 16 months. And the prospect of inviting the world to Vancouver in 2026 all of a sudden takes on a whole do- new meaning, not just for those passionate about soccer, but those who would want to see an opportunity to reacquaint the world with the splendor of British Columbia and particularly Vancouver. So. Okay, interesting. As you heard him say there, John, Montreal has dropped out. They said they didn't want to pay for it anymore, so now BC may be picking up the ball here. Yeah, exactly. So right now, Edmonton, Toronto, still very much in the mix. Uh, Canada was supposed to provide three destinations, so this is where Vancouver does play a role. And if we're talking about the city, of course, you're going to hear from the mayor. So Kennedy Stewart was actually on Mornings with Simi earlier today talking about his personal excitement for this potential. I have a confession to make. I just absolutely love the World Cup. It's my favorite sporting event. Uh, and when I first heard we had a chance to host the games three years ago, I was, I was really, really excited. Um, but then when uh, the province put the brakes on uh, their portion of this and decided not to participate, that that was that. But now it seems like the premier's changed his position, and uh, I think we're in a great position to re-enter the conversation. Okay, interesting. Uh, this is a lot of money, though. It's not a simple process to get this uh, event up and running, though, right? Yeah, that's exactly what uh, Mayor Stewart sort of mentioned as well, highlighting the fact that Montreal did back out of their bid. So uh, on, on terms of how this is going to all play out, Kennedy Stewart talking about it's all dollars and cents. You know, first of all, I'll say Vancouver is very good at hosting events, uh, Olympics, Rugby Sevens. We did host the FIFA's World uh, Women's World, World, uh, World Cup, so... 
we know how to do this and it'd be great for tourism. Uh, but it's not quite as simple as people might think it, it is. Um, we And we have a reason to be cautious. Uh, we just noted that Montreal pulled out of their bid, um, and this indicates to me this isn't easy and straightforward. So, um, you know, it it all comes down to costs. Uh, FIFA is a really demanding partner, and Montreal stepped back because of local financial pressures. Yeah, FIFA is a demanding partner for sure. They demand a lot of these World Cup host cities. It was a deal breaker before, maybe not so much this time, though, John. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, FIFA, even the IOC back in 2010, they demand a lot and they are some of the few international bodies that have the cachet to sort of get away with some of those demands. But staying with Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart also mentioned, look, this might not be the only opportunity for Vancouver to think about. If you recall, baseball was also in conversation in recent weeks. So take a listen here. You know, one thing I can tell everybody, like as we're coming out of COVID, Vancouver is one of the hottest spots on the planet. I mean, we've had potential of Major League Baseball teams coming here. Of course, there's the Olympics, uh, Winter Olympics in 2030. There's now FIFA, uh, and and those are kind of the showstopper events. There's there's so many other things that are coming across my desk that I'm feeling very very good about our economic recovery, and that also means that we don't have to leap at everything that comes our way. Oh, man, I forgot about the baseball team. Yeah, he was gung-ho on that a couple of weeks ago, too. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So Vancouver does have options here. So I'm I'm thinking that the mayor's playing a, a little coy here, not really wanting to tip his full hand and saying, look, we've got so many great things going on, Mike. We don't always have to say yes to these things. But then Kirk Lapointe, who was on uh, CKNW Afternoons yesterday with Jody Vance, uh, of course, with Business in Vancouver, did talk specifically about the costs and the rewards if Vancouver were to enter FIFA 2026. $60 million for three games just to start. There's a whole bunch of issues as well around how security costs are going to be uh, shared among the host cities. The indemnification issues are pretty serious. And um, and ultimately, you know, it, it amounts to probably three games in the first round of a diluted World Cup, 48 teams instead of the, the smaller draw, uh, no guarantee that Canada will be any of, in any of them. The draw will just be the draw. and um, But you will get some facilities ahead of time. You'll get probably some training camps. You'll get some friendly games, maybe one or two games the year before and, and a game or two afterward. Okay, that's interesting what he said about the games. Like, maybe Vancouver would get three games here. Maybe fewer games than that. We don't know for sure. The details were, were not clear on that earlier. But it's very likely you would not get the huge big marquee matchups like mm-hmm. we would not look we probably wouldn't be getting england italy o- no. okay we might be getting some of the the smaller fish as they're called in the pool and i believe it's already been determined that the united states will be hosting the final uh, whichever two right. nations that comes down to because they have more than a dozen cities uh, as part of the 2026 hosting process but that brings us to the point of bc place here mike and as i'm sure you and i both understand it's becoming a bit of an issue here for the city as they currently own or rather the province owns bc place kirk right. lapointe talking about how it's becoming a financial drain bc place is increasingly becoming a white elephant um, yeah. You know, it, it really doesn't have enough in it. And uh, and we know that, um, you know, with these types of stadia around the world right now, if you can't fill them regularly, uh, they just become a drain. So, 
Okay, interesting. If you take a look at the earlier details of the proposed deal for Vancouver and BC Place, John, they wanted two grass fields, not just one natural grass field. They wanted two. They wanted a backup one just in case something went wrong with the first one. Another big challenge at BC Place Stadium was the power supply. FIFA was demanding a second independent power supply for the stadium just in case there's a power disruption and a game gets knocked off of TV. That's that's the big disaster. They wanted a backup power supply. You would have to have maybe BC Hydro put in a separate power grid just for BC Place Stadium. So that's huge. Right. I mean, the investment into infrastructure would at least get into the couple of millions of dollars already just to try and make sure that BC Place is fitted for what FIFA is demanding. But there are benefits here, Mike, to consider. Kirk LaPointe also mentioned in 2016, BC Place did host a FIFA qualifier match with Mexico. Here's his thoughts on that. When we hosted Mexico last time, um, 15,000 people came uh, into the city from that country. You can just imagine what might happen if, if the countries that get drawn for Vancouver games are rather proximate how much tourism that would create. And it's not going to simply take away from the other tourism that would take place. I think this is new new money that comes in that wouldn't have otherwise come into Vancouver and will expose the city again for the great place that it is, the way that the Olympics did. Okay, interesting. I think tourism is the key here. I mean, the tourism industry has been absolutely battered by the pandemic and premier john horgan under a lot of pressure here to help this struggling tourism industry now we're talking about a world cup john that wouldn't be until 2026 so we're talking Mm -hmm. five years out but i guess it would certainly uh give a boost uh, a shot in the arm here for a struggling tourism industry if we suddenly had a piece of this Yeah, absolutely, Mike. And that's why I'm personally in favor of it. Now, historically, I've not been a huge fan of uh, just the FIFA body, similar to the IOC. I know what people's uh, strong opinions about those two bodies are, and I don't think they're wrong. But because of the tourism benefits, look, COVID wiped out basically all last year. Uh, Most of this year has not also gone exactly according to plan in terms of business owners trying to get back to a sense of normalcy. Five years from now is a long time away, but if it means injecting millions of dollars potentially in terms of tourism revenue, even if it's temporary, that's a benefit that I think we can't ignore. Okay, well, I was opposed to this idea the first go around, and I haven't really seen a lot (laughs) to change my mind here. I mean, I want to see the nitty gritty, the fine print on this deal. I think taxpayers have got a right to know what they're signing up for here. Because if you take a look at the original deal, this was going to cost BC taxpayers a fortune for maybe two or three soccer games. And then you take a look at the fine print. It said FIFA had the right, which by the way, is one of the most corrupt governing bodies in sport. But it it had the fine print in the deal was that FIFA could change the terms of the deal after it was signed for basically any reason and any cost overruns that resulted would be the responsibility of, guess who? BC taxpayers. That was a deal breaker for the provincial government three years ago. I don't know what's changed since then unless FIFA is telling Horgan something different. Yeah, no, not much has changed so far, except for those private discussions that the premier has had with some of those officials. But keep in mind, this is a joint enterprise. You have the United States with over a dozen cities, three cities from Mexico as well, plus the additional two cities uh, representing Canada. So uh, all of the expenses you would think are minimized uh, as opposed to, let's say, considering hosting the Olympics all over again, where you alone are on the bill for 100%. So that's why, to me, it's a little bit easier. But certainly, I don't 
don't want taxpayers paying more than they have to unless right. there's a benefit like the tourism industry. All right, welcome back. Talking about the 2026 World Cup of Soccer. Should Vancouver bid to be part of the bid cities here? Now, this is a North American World Cup. Canada, U.S., Mexico won the rights to stage the World Cup of Soccer in 2026. Vancouver, originally not part of it. Montreal, though, has now pulled out. They say they don't want to spend the money now to host World Cup Soccer. Vancouver, possibly, back in the mix here. John Jang is with me. Let's take your calls here. Tristan in Surrey. Hi, Tristan. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. What do you think? Uh, I say no because you're signing a blank check at the moment. Just look at the Olympics in L.A. and Paris. The Olympic Committee now has to give uh, those two cities something like $2 billion each to host them. Yeah. Yeah, no, FIFA, FIFA, thank you for the call. FIFA is notorious on these contract details, John. And if you take a Mm -hmm. look at the original deal here that was rejected by the BC government three years ago, I just looked it up again. The deal that was offered would allow FIFA to, quote, add multiple modifications and or enhancements and or additional requirements to the contract with any cost overruns born by bc taxpayers it really was a blank check i do believe the experience from the olympics helps out vancouver in terms of planning for this a little bit better because again it's not like you're doing this for two weeks all by yourself there are other cities involved with the process and i'll also say if we're talking about financial concerns is anyone happy with the way bc place is being used these days it sits empty most of the time and that's even pre-covid times and after spending half a billion dollars on renovating the roof it doesn't seem like it's been showing any value ever since okay let's go to randy on the line in burnaby hi randy Hi, Mike. Yeah, I think we should absolutely do this. Montreal backed out because they were planning on spending a billion dollars to revamp that stadium. Now they don't have that money. We already have the billion-dollar stadium. It's the best stadium in the country. Another thing people need to keep in mind is the vice president of FIFA is Victor Montagliani from East Vancouver, which is like being the vice president of a small country. It's huge. He could be president by um, by the time 2026 rolls around. And uh, as for which teams might be playing in Vancouver, it's up to a draw. It's not like they're going to say, oh, it's Vancouver, so we're going to put the minnows over there. It's it's all by luck. It's It's a draw. And we could very well get some big teams here. So let's not count that out. Okay, so we could get France. We could get Germany. We could, I don't know, maybe we could get Canada. John, your thoughts? Yeah, it's not impossible to get some of those major uh, teams or nations, pardon me, because it'll all depend on which nations fall under which groups and which groups are assigned to which city. But we do know that the United States are going to get the the favorite matchups in terms of how uh, deep the tournament goes, the semifinals, and then eventually the finals. It'll all take place in the United States. Okay, and Canada would be in automatically as a host country. That right? is correct. Yeah, all three nations would be automatically entered. And it's also a bigger pool just because the format is changing. So 48 nations Okay, thank goodness Canada would be in automatically because they're having a heck of a time trying to get in uh, on their record. Let's go to Graham on the Sunshine Coast. Hey, Graham. Hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, sure. First of all, I'm a I'm a huge soccer fan. Have been all my life in Vancouver, but I'm not for this. I think we could get way more bang for our buck by. We've had an art gallery that's been spinning its wheels for years. I, when I go traveling, I love to go to the big art galleries, and many people do. It generates. More money than sports in the long run. Look at Bill hmm. Bale in, uh, in Spain, the Guggenheim there. It's just a huge draw. 
And we need to start rebranding our provinces more than just fun city, you know. Okay. So I'd like okay. to see the money spent on arts and culture. Okay, Graham. Time draw. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for the call, man. Appreciate it. Well, there's lots of money I guess we could spend on tourism draws. John, we just got 30 seconds here. I mean, I got a feeling though that. Horgan wants to do this. I mean, Horgan is kind of a sports guy. He's a sports mm-hmm. fan. And I think you could, re- reading his body language yesterday, I think he wants this. Well, he's got the majority government now that he didn't have three years ago. And yeah. I do agree with you, Mike. I think he wants his legacy, so to speak, to be this and not Site C. We'll see exactly <laughs> how that turns out. But uh, I don't want Edmonton and Toronto having fun when we know Vancouverites and British Columbians can also be having fun. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.